Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September 23rd, 2016. This is episode 1877 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, time for the Monster Show of the Week, and this will actually clean out. i got to get new questions off to the expert council uh, for their next month. So this is a really uh, good time for you guys to be getting your last questions in for expert council members over this weekend, because Monday I'll be sending them out. I'm not saying I'll have any for them. But what I am saying is, on Monday, I'm going to send out the questions that I have for the next 30-day cycle. And if you send me questions after that, you're being pushed definitely into the cycle after that. So, And who could I use questions for? I could use questions for Brian Black, definitely. I could use some for Tim from Old Grouch, I believe. Um, I keep a pretty steady diet going to Stephen Harris. I think I need some for Keith Snow as well. So, uh, you know, oh, Erica, I, I don't think I have but one question to send Erica right now. So... Guys, get me questions for expert counsel. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, I've got the, uh, we're just cleaning out the last of the last here. I've actually got Tim Glantz on deck twice today. Uh, first, he's going to tell us about the military mobile kitchen trailer. Uh, and then I'll put his other question at the end to kind of sandwich things in. Stephen Harris is going to tell us, no, 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 to use batteries for your battery bank in a way only Stephen Harris can do it. Uh, we're going to talk about dealing with demonstrations and riots, especially when you're mobile, like as a delivery driver or something. You can't just completely avoid it with uh, Brian Black of ITS Tactical. And cooking turkey sous-vid style with Keith Snow. And back to Tim Glantz then, building a ham radio antenna and shack when you're doing it all from scratch. Uh, remember, guys, Tim doesn't just do military stuff. He is a certified ham radio guy, and he's happy to answer your questions on those. And then I'm going to finish up the show today with some perspective on the rise of autonomous vehicles. Uh, and specifically, before I give it to you, I'm going to play you some comments from the president of Ford Motor Company who says, yeah, we're going to be doing this like in mass by 2021. Which, guys, 2021 is not that far away. It's not that, it is one more ass clown circus away, isn't it? But it's not. I mean, it's going to, bam, we're going to be there. Um, and the most important part is the last question he sort of answers and they just kind of end it and I'll leave it to you for that. Before we get to that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to bulkammo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey, guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine. Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home. Up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. 
Next, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1877, because the episode is 1877. And I have Shrek. It's Swan Lake. I have The Long Surrender of the South. And I have Congress is Off to the Races. And in other news, Edison invents the phonograph. He records Mary's Little Lamb on tinfoil wrapped around a cylinder. It works the first time, which worries him a little. Canals are observed on Mars. An Italian astronomer sketches Mars with connecting lines across the surface. Straight lines imply intelligent life, don't they? And the Quaker Oats Man is trademark. Henry Seedmore chooses this symbol to represent the mill because he believes Quakers represent purity. Um, out of the main ones I'm going to read for you today, I'm going to read Shrek at Swan Lake because I never really knew what Swan Lake was about. I'm sorry, I don't have much culture. I'm a Texas redneck duck farmer. I mean, come on, right? I, you can get me with some classical music in time and time, but ballet, not me. But I, I didn't know that I actually knew the story of Swan Lake because it's Shrek. Shrek was a cool movie. I remember seeing it with my kid when he was still young enough to go to you know movies like that with his parents. It was uh, kind of interesting, and I thought it was kind of original and. Apparently, wah, wah, here we go. The Russian composer Tchaikovsky has scored a hit. It's not just another chick ballet. It's Swan Lake. The story surrounds Princess Odette, who turns into a swan, who's turned into a swan by an evil sorcerer. She's cursed to remain a beautiful swan by day and take her true form at night. Wait, this sounds like the plot for Shrek. Her only hope is Prince Siegfried, who must break the spell with his true love. It is Shrek, those turkeys. Swan Lake has parallels in several folk tales where a young princess does not listen to the warnings of her prince and is turned into a duck or a swan by a witch. The witch disguises herself as a princess until the prince discovers the deception in Swan Lake. The ending is tragic. Spoiler alert, this ballet has been remade into major motion picture Black Swan 2010 starring Natalie Portman. So if you don't know how all this ends, not as a society hasn't been hitting you over the head with it over and over again. The evil sorcerer tricks the prince into believing Princess Odile is really Princess Odette. The bride switch is old as the Bible. Odette is betrayed and lost. She casts herself into a lake of tears. Prince Siegfried jumps after her, but some good comes of Odette's sacrifice. The sorcerer's power is broken, and the other swans under her spell are freed. The musical themes introduced in the ballet will be repeated in various forms in the modern day, and the story of Swan Lake will be made into popular movies, TV shows, video games, and a couple of hilarious skits. On Saturday Night Live. Um, I'm just going to give you my take on this. This is what we call pattern recognition, right? And if you actually know the original, then you see the pattern in its repetition. And most things are simply remakes of something somebody else already did when it comes to stories and music and what have you. And even things that don't seem like it are generally just a retelling of the the... As old as humans are in telling stories, we've had this concept of darkness and light, uh, good and evil. Okay, And that's what you see in, in all of these things. You can look at things that seem totally divorced from anything from the past, like, oh, I don't know, Star Wars? The dark side and the light side? Come on, it's, it's, it's all the same. It, it's, it's, it's all repetition, and it's because it makes sense to humans that there is balance And that for good there is evil, and for evil there is good. And that one counters the other. And it's kind of the basis of all religions. It's kind of the basis of most stories. Most stories have a, a protagonist and an antagonist in them. But I didn't know Swan Lake literally was the plot line for Shrek. It sounds like they, they moved some things around, they changed things up. The princess wasn't a swan, she was just a beautiful princess that turned into an ogre at night and 
Apparently her true nature was being an ogre. I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, sometimes you wonder some of these uh, things, if people were imbibing on a little bit of uh, the precious herb when they made them. Uh, I don't want to get too serious today. It's a Friday. We've had a lot of serious things going on lately. So just want to have a bit of fun, and that's why I selected that one. And, again, I want to thank uh, Alex for his uh, his work at tspwiki.com with the the history segment. I will tell you that both the long surrender of the South and Congress's off to the races make some pretty interesting reading. And uh, even if you don't usually get by and read the other ones today, you might want to do that. And uh, again, Alex, thank you for your service to our community through the uh, daily uh, piece of history segment that you do for the year that was the episode. Thank you very much. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the first question I have for the expert counsel today. This question is for Tim Glantz on the military mobile kitchen trailers. Uh, Tim, can you take this away? Hey, everybody. Tim Glantz here with Old Grouch's Military Surplus uh, with the expert panel answer. Uh, not a name on there, so this one might have come straight from Jack. Says Tim, can you give us a rundown on the U.S. mobile kitchen trailers, uh, the MKT-85 and MKT-90, I believe, and the difference between the two units? Also, are there are any foreign units worth looking at. Okay, for those who aren't familiar with it, the MKT is, as it says, mobile kitchen trailer, and there are actually several models there. There's the MKT-75, 75A, 82, 82, 85, 85S, 90, 95, and 99. Uh, and uh, as you might guess the uh, the numbers on it are the year they were introduced. Uh, and basically, the MKT is a kitchen on wheels for an entire um, mess section. They would haul that typically behind a deuce and a half a five ton, set it up in the field, and an MKT serving uh, what are called A or B rats, which is basically food, you know, cooked like you would do just in a mess hall, can serve 250 soldiers two meals a day. Typically, your hot chow plan was you had hot chow for breakfast, you had an MRE for lunch, and you had hot chow for dinner. Uh, serving tea rats, if any of you are familiar with those, they're big trays that are just heated up. They can do between 300 and 350 uh, soldiers uh, uh, per day with two meals. The way it basically works, the MKT is built on a ton-and-a-half uh, trailer chassis, and it has sides that fold down and a roof that raises up, and built into it are several field ranges, uh, a griddle, and several other pieces, and then there's coolers in there, and it's, it is basically essentially a kitchen on, uh, on wheels. Uh, mess section rolls up, they unfold the sides, which makes it, uh, twice as wide, and gives a walkway around it, and they fire up the burner units, and they start cooking, just like they were anywhere else. Uh, there, uh, the biggest differences in them, uh, as far as between like the 85 and the 90 and all those, the differences are very minor. They change things when they change vendors. The roof design changed, uh, between, uh, 6 and 12 vents over the years. Uh, there were some changes in the braces, and I think only the 85 and later models were approved to be sling loaded under a Chinook, and some of the others weren't. From a functional standpoint, using them, uh, there's not a significant difference. The biggest difference you come across on the MKTs is that when they were made, they were powered by what were known as M2 burner units for the heat that ran gasoline. 
And if you can imagine a Coleman stove on steroids with a big old tank and a big giant burner, that's what these were like. Uh, but the Army got on a kick about uh, 20 years ago to get rid of all the gasoline-powered things in the Army inventory so that we could run one fuel and one fuel only, and that was going to be JP-8. Uh, we run all our diesel engines on JP-8. We run everything on JP-8. The Marines went as far as to have some of their Kawasaki motorcycles converted to run on diesel or JP-8. Uh, anything that uh, they've got that will run on JP-8 other than the aircraft uh, will also run on diesel. So I'm just going to say diesel here because we're meaning the same thing. But anyway, they converted the uh, uh, burner units. They developed a new one that was called the MBU or Modern Burner Unit that ran on diesel fuel or JP-8. The biggest difference other than the fuel they take between these two is the M2 burner unit, just like a Coleman stove, simply ran on pressure. There was a pump. You pumped it up. You started it. Once you got it, got the heat up in the generator, uh, it generated enough heat. It self-pressurized. It kept going. The modern burner unit, given that diesel is a lot harder to use in these applications, must have a supply of 24 volts DC to run. Not just to start, but to start and to run. So that is a big difference. You can run an MKT with the older M2 burner units with no electricity whatsoever. The, the newer ones that run off diesel require DC power. Uh, they could either power, since all the military vehicles were 24 volt, they could be powered directly off a vehicle, or they had inverters for when we were running them off generator power to make the power. But either way, if you get one that has the modern burner units in them, you will have to have DC power to make that thing work. Now, uh, you can spot the difference if you're looking at one, like on auction pictures or anything. The modern burner units will have a small uh, LCD readout. There's a little computer in those things uh, that runs everything. And uh, you'll be able to tell the difference right away, and they'll have the plug-in where you can put the power to them. Now, as far as uh, using them, unless you've got to feed a lot of people, they're not very practical. Uh, they're big, heavy units. Uh, you know, empty, they're about 5,500 pounds. A uh, little difference between the models, depending on which one. That's before you've got any water, any fuel, any food, anything. So you're up over 6,000 pounds. Keep in mind, these are on a ton-and-a-half trailer chassis that has air over hydraulic brakes. So unless you're towing it with something with air brakes, you're not going to have any brakes unless you do uh, a conversion to electric over hydraulic, which is going to cost you about $600. Uh, and even then, uh, they're still big. Also, they are, they run the big deuce and a half style tires, uh, which are the lock ring 920s, which most tire shops will not change for you anymore because they consider them too dangerous. So there are some significant downsides to it there. And it, like I said, it's big. You can set up, uh, you know, feeding out there. Unless you're serving more than a hundred people, it, it's overkill. If you're in a situation where you're going to serve a whole bunch of people like that, uh, I, I can see it being practical. Or, you know, if you've got, if you're serving 20 or 30 and you're going to have to do it in an austere environment, I can see where maybe setting one of those up like at a permanent camp or something might be practical. But, uh, Otherwise, uh, I'd almost look at getting one and taking the good components out of it, like the field ranges, which are extremely versatile, uh, and the griddles, and mounting them on in a more practical platform, something like a, you know a gutted uh, camper trailer or something. You can also uh, convert the older M2 burner units. I have seen a lot of people convert those to propane using the existing burner 
uh, piping propane in with a regulator. Uh, back in the 90s, I used to get a lot of those surplus and sell them to people that had boiled peanut stands, and they would always convert them to propane because it was easier. But I sent field ranges up and down uh, all over the south to guys because if you get them, they have a big holder for a pot that goes down inside them, and they're perfect for boiled peanuts. But uh, you can convert it to propane. Uh, so, you know, there's limited applications for them on the civilian side. Uh, I have seen people use them for catering stuff, for big catering. It give you a gimmick if you do a military theme on all of it. Uh, one thing to be aware of is a lot of that stuff does not come with the NSF, National Sanitary Foundation, stickers on it. Uh, so depending on your health inspector and the rules where you're at, Health inspectors may not like the way they're configured because they're not used to seeing them and it's something unusual for them. And I've seen people who bought them who had to end up gutting and taking perfectly good stuff out and replacing it just because it didn't have that sticker and they couldn't trace it back to where the military never demanded that uh, the manufacturer get that certification. So that's something to keep in mind if you're looking at doing it where it might be in a uh, setting where any kind of public health thing would be involved, be it uh, health inspection or anything else. So I hope that helps. I hope that answers any question. As always, uh, thanks for the great podcast, and everybody have a great day. So, so you might think that since I was an Army mechanic that I would have known everything that he just said. I, I had no knowledge of this stuff at all. Um, I, the units that I went to the field with were engineer units, and we built a kitchen. You know, I mean, we, 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 if you're going to go to the field in the military, going with engineers is the way to go. I mean, we, when we put up tents, we were putting them up on, uh, plywood platforms. And I just never had to work on, on these, uh, these pieces of equipment. I worked on a lot of different trailers from big to little and, and back again. And, uh, I had, I had never actually, I knew of them, but I'd never actually had any experience with them at all. So it sounds like there's some useful things there, but maybe the whole thing as it sits is not the, uh, the most useful thing. I mean, I don't know when it comes to, uh, to cooking for a lot of people, you know, propane seems like the easiest thing. So that conversion sounds interesting, but I'm just kind of getting my head around a, Kind of could what what could if Steve and Harris and I got together we talked about doing a show on a bug out trailer but if we got together and thought about what what could we do to cook the most amount of food for the most amount of people and with the with a trailer that could be pulled with you know like a, a compact pickup truck uh, what could we come up with it just has my head spinning uh, anyway speaking of Stephen Harris someone has has asked Stephen a question that I'm surprised didn't give an aneurysm to him about buying used batteries. Um, for building a battery backup system to save some money. Here's Steve's response. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. Jack, I have a question for Steve Harris. I have come across a listing for used batteries on Craigslist. I have listened to your episodes and know that used batteries are not always ideal, but I'm wanting to put in a low-cost battery bank and wanted to know if any of these batteries would be a viable option, or would I be better off going with a marine battery instead? And here's the link to Craigslist. He goes to state, I looked up the batteries on Craigslist. They are a DataSafe HX505. They're 135-ampere-hour batteries, and they have a 10-year life expectancy. Well, if they have a 10-year life expectancy, then why are they getting rid of them after only three years? 
They have a five-year life expectancy. I would only consider these if there was a date code on the batteries, though it's stated in the Craigslist ad that some of them have had the date codes removed. What other items should I confirm, and what would be the best way about confirmation if these are a viable option? I have heard that some of these offerings sometimes come from radio stations or the like. I just want to get the best value for my dollar. It's not the best value that you want for your dollar. It's the best security you want for your dollar. It's like saying, I'm going to go buy this really cheap gun because I want the best value for my dollar for the protection of my life and my family if things get bad. So, Mike, thank you. And here's the Craigslist ad. I have several sizes available. All batteries were used in big UPS cabinets and were fully functional when removed. They were all individually tested with a cold crank amp tester and then load tested to ensure proper voltage when a load was put on it. Note, this is not the proper way you test the battery, nor is it the way you can ensure its chemistry, its active surface area, its life expectancy. None of this is the what you do to check a battery. And checking the battery for everything I just mentioned, it's very hard. So, the prices listed are my best prices, period. I am not able to go cheaper, no matter how many you want to buy. Here's what I currently have in stock, and he lists the DataSafe HX505 135 ampere hour for 90 bucks. All batteries are right around three years old. They lived an easy life inside a climate-controlled UPS cabinet. Some had to have date codes. <laughs> Some had to have their date codes and other stickers removed for liability reasons. I can't have these batteries being identified if they end up in a dumpster or some other place they're not supposed to be. That's like saying, hey, the serial number is removed from this gun I'm about to sell you, you know, because I can't be responsible for it if it ends up being used in a crime. So he goes, I do this in high quantities and I do a lot of business. So how the hell do you know if all the batteries you're getting are the same, the same age, the same date code, and the same everything? So this is like asking me, hey, Steve, is this girl here I just met who I've not even talked to? Would she be a good wife for me, Steve? Someone you're going to marry and spend the rest of your life with? Do you know if she's a drug user? A drunk? Does she like to party hard? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. What diseases does she have? What's her family like? Are they a bunch of losers too? Same goes for the battery. You are going to be married to this battery. Your lifeline, your cell phone, your internet communications via your cell phone, your ability to communicate with friends and family and call them and see if they're okay and let them know you're okay and get word out to other people, your ability to call help, 911, police, fire, EMS, 
the ability to run your radios and your small TVs and your information. So you get information on the disaster you're going through, like where the heck is the hurricane and is it coming right for me? You know, the information on your disaster is all tied to this battery. Your AA and your AAA batteries that you're going to recharge, your Panasonic end loops for your headlamps and your lanterns and your nighttime illumination are all going to be dependent upon this battery. And you want to know if this complete stranger is going to be a good wife for you. I'm sorry, I'm not really yelling at you. I'm just being dramatic for dramatic purposes because I want to drive home a point. You're asking a wonderful, perfectly legitimate question. And if you're asking, and there's 150,000 people listening listening to this, there's at least 1,000 people who have the same question as you have. So you're asking a wonderful question. So don't think I'm bashing on you. I'm being dramatic for dramatic sake. So did that battery sit on a circuit that kept failing? And so you got one battery on a circuit that kept failing and a bunch of others that were on circuits that didn't fail. Did it get discharged multiple times? Are all the batteries the same age? Has it ever been dropped hard? Has it been short-circuited? These are AGM batteries that you're talking about, but they were flooded batteries. Was all the electrolyte kept at the proper levels? Did the electrolyte ever drop and expose the cells? Now, I was just at Walmart, not the other day before you emailed me this, and I took a photo, completely unrelated to this question, of a brand new Group 29 Marine Deep Cycle battery, so I could post it on Facebook because it was ninety nine ninety five. And it was 105 ampere hours, brand new at Walmart. Guys, this is what you want to make a battery bank with. It's right here at Walmart. You can come get it anytime you want. These are brand new. They'll last for about a good five years. Don't you think you'd rather have a brand new battery for $99 than a used one for $90 that you know nothing about? Or do you want to end up in your basement with the rain coming down on your house, thunder and lightning, and at 3 a.m. in the morning with cold water in the basement up to your ankles, the sump pump not working, the battery bank is just not being responsive for some reason because of these batteries you got off of Craigslist, and you're wearing a headlamp in complete darkness with your children at the top of the stairs crying because daddy's in a dark hole and they can't see him and your wife is yelling at the same time at the top of the stairs, when are you going to fix this? Why is this not working? You told me we were safe and we were prepared. When you, you buy a good gun, you buy good new batteries, and you marry an absolutely awesome, incredible woman. Those are three good things to live by and follow in, in your life. This is Steve Harris. If you want to know all of the great, free, wonderful classes I have, including the one on fuel storage and the free class on making your home an emergency battery bank, where I cover battery selection, and all of section number one of three on the battery bank class, because battery selection is so crucial. 
do you want to have a battery that's lead, that's acid safe? So because you got kids around, one that won't spill any acid. Do you want to have golf cart battery? Do you want a deep cycle marine battery? Do you want to have what's called an 8D, you know, farm tractor battery? I cover all this stuff. This is stuff that you have to know. It's like buying a gun. It's like, do I want to buy 22 or 45 or a 30 odd six? Gun selection is critical. Battery selection is very critical. I'm not you. What I buy for a gun is not your gun. What I get for a battery is not your battery. You got to learn to select your, your your own battery. So take the time and go through the free class. You can go through it all for nothing with a tap on your phone at stephen1234.com. Thank you for writing such an excellent question. I know it was on the mind of many other people. These things pop up all the time. And it was a good one for me to illustrate. Thank you very much. Talk to you next week. He he makes completely valid points. I think that's that's kind of the big thing. A lot of times these batteries that you think you're getting great deals on, um, you, you it's not that great a deal. You can get a a a known quality. Now maybe maybe the battery is a larger storage capacity or whatever, but it's it's, it's been used so. I would kind of look at it this way. Let's imagine that that those batteries worked. Fairly decent for three or four years, okay? And uh, th- th- you didn't have a huge problem with them that you could. That you got, you got lucky. You got the best of the best out of that deal. And let's say that you were comparing two buckets, okay? And you were going to buy uh, a used bucket that was a seven-gallon bucket because you could carry seven gallons of water with it. And the new bucket was only $5.00. Or five gallons, but it costs a little bit more. So you'd say, well, hell, I mean, it, it, I'm getting a better deal by buying the, the older, uh, bigger bucket. But when you look at batteries, it's like, well, what's the capacity? How much can you fill it up? So imagine that somebody had taken and taken away three gallons or three and a half gallons of that bucket's capacity by filling it up with something you couldn't remove, like let's say hard packed concrete. He said, but it's still a seven-gallon bucket. Well, it only holds three and a half gallons now, and you can buy this. And, yes, it was a larger capacity bucket, but now you can buy this five-gallon brand-new bucket that's going to last you five years, and the three-and-a-half-gallon capacity of the seven-gallon bucket might last you three years if you're lucky. And when you really need it and you really need the water and you pick it up, the bottom could fall out of it. That's that's kind of how I look at this this whole. But they're cheap. But they're available now. Here's where I differ with Steve. If you had a good battery bank and two is one and one is none, and you could get them for free, well, hell, that's fine. But putting good money into them, no, no, not going to happen. Not not if it's me. Next, I have a question for Brian Black on dealing with all of this political unrest. For you know, if you're a driver and you have to be driving around, and there's you know. People rioting and stuff like that. You know, what what can you do about that? How can you keep yourself safe? With that, Brian, man, take it away. Hey, TSC, it's Brian Black from ITS with another expert council question. So this one comes from Jacob, and he says it's not something new, but we're beginning to see more political demonstrations blocking highways, be it BLM, Greenpeace, whomever. As someone who drives a delivery truck for a living, what advice would you give someone for avoiding, if possible, and dealing with necessary or dealing with as necessary such protests? especially with the possibility of violence amongst the backed-up cars. So uh, former Navy SEAL Justin Ellis wrote a great article on ITS a few months back on this very subject. Um, and in it, he suggested a few comments as principles, like keeping good distance behind a vehicle in front of you to allow yourself enough room to maneuver around, like 
on a shoulder or a curb, et cetera. So I'll also quote them directly here when it comes to someone blocking your path that makes you feel like your life or the life of your family are in danger. The law of gross tonnage is an ally. So moving people out of the way allows you to escape and provides them an opportunity to move out of your way as well as you're moving towards them. Um, I'll also share some lessons I learned in a PSD, a protective security detail class that took a few years back. So drivers drive, period. So meaning that your attention should always be on driving the vehicle and not what's going on in the back seat. And always keep the vehicle moving, meaning that in any situation you're in, the best thing to do is always keep the vehicle moving if possible. So thanks for the question. Hope that helps. Uh, keep them coming. Remember to check out ITS for your daily dose of skill sets and resources to help you explore your world and prevail against all threats. www.itstactical.com. Thanks. I think that I completely agree with the, the last piece of advice. It's probably the most important piece of advice that I see people not doing uh, out there in the world today with these protesters blocking roads. Never stop. Now, that doesn't mean when somebody runs out in front of you, you put the hammer down and turn them into a, a squishy, as they say in the tanker industry. Uh, and I do mean the tanks in, in the military, by the way. That's what they refer to ground troops as if you're a tank driver as a squishy. And I'm not suggesting these squishy them, but I'm, I'm going to tell you there is a certain component to human nature. And a vehicle moving at 5 to 10 miles an hour is not the vehicle that somebody's going to jump in front of. And if you keep moving, they'll probably get out of the way. And you know what? If they don't and you think your life's in danger, then they become a squishy. Right. I mean, I, I see this crap going on and I, I am fed up with our news media on this guy, by the way, guys, right now. Like, what's going on in Charlotte? This is not protesting. This is rioting. This is rioting. And, and I, but I want to come back to this. I don't care if it's your job. If you're putting your life in danger over delivering Doritos or gasoline or Pepsi Cola or anything, don't. If you can in any way, if you feel you're legitimately in danger, and your employer wants to kind of penalize you for that or something, let them, because you can own their ass in the end. So whenever you're in a situation where you can avoid danger, even if there's a consequence for that avoidance, if that danger is serious, and some of the shit that's going on right now is serious, err to the side of caution. Err to the side of caution. And definitely keep the vehicle moving. Uh, next up, I have a uh, question for Keith Snow on SUSVID. I'm sure I've said that wrong, so Keith will say it right. Uh, for Turkey, Keith, take it away, man. Hey, this is Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. John Paul, let's talk about cooking some turkey, dude. Now, when Thanksgiving comes, um, the big meal, right, cooking that turkey and getting it uh, brought out to the table, properly cooked, juicy, nice and golden brown, can be a challenge. When you factor in all the other items that need to be cooked and heated and served and all that. Um, this is one of those days where, you know, kitchen disasters certainly occur. And uh, this isn't just for the novice cook. I mean, uh, it doesn't matter how great a cook or chef you are. If your timing gets off, if you get distracted, you can mess foods up, particularly the turkey. Now, I've cooked many a Thanksgiving where I've arrived and the turkey's been in the oven for four hours already and, uh, you know, roasting away with that ridiculous thermometer popped up and um, <clears throat> the host or hostess saying, well, I just thought I'd give you a head start and I was supposed to cook the meal for these people. And I'm like, well, this head start just gave us a desert dry turkey. So 
taking your question into account, this is what I'm going to recommend for you. Now, you're talking about parting the bird out. Um, almost sounds like what you do when a car breaks down on the side of the road in New York City. It gets parted out, right? You come back 30 minutes later and it's up on cement blocks. But you're going to part out this turkey and figure out how to cook it and get it all done. This is what I suggest. There's a technique called sous vide, and it's spelled S-O-U-S V-I-D-E. In French, it just means under vacuum. Now, sous vide is a pretty cool way to cook things. Now, essentially, what sous vide is, it's a very carefully, and this is where it's different because some people, you go on the internet, oh, I can do sous vide. You get, you know, a $5 stick thermometer, some boiling water and Ziploc bags. You're not really doing sous vide the way it was intended. Now, sous vide is a large, um, you know, container of water and there's a device in there. It's usually a heater and a circulator all in one. And it's, it comes from the laboratory industry where they need precise temperatures for whatever they're doing. But this circulator goes into this water and it will maintain a very precise temperature over a long period of time. Now, in sous vide cooking, you take the item that you're going to be cooking you put it into vacuum bags. Remember I said sous vide means under vacuum. So it goes into vacuum bags with assorted spices, seasonings, herbs, butter, fat, whatever it might be. And then it's vacuum sealed, you know, using your, um, your home vacuum sealer. Once that thing is vacuum sealed, it can then go into the sous vide process and you can cook things to the precise temperature you want them at. Now, this doesn't sound like such a groundbreaking thing, but just picture this. When you get a turkey, a whole turkey, that thing comes out of the refrigerator. You know, if you're lucky, it's 37 degrees. Most people use a frozen turkey and they don't defrost it. I've said it a hundred times on this show. You know, uh, Tuesday night, they say, oh crap, I got to get the turkey out of the freezer. They take it out, put it in the refrigerator. That thing is frozen in the middle. No matter what you say, you know, 15, 18 pound turkey that was frozen Tuesday night, that thing is still frozen Thursday, you know, before lunch when you start cooking it for Thanksgiving. This is a considerable problem because roasting temperature, let's just say you're going easy and you have it at 350, that's 350 degrees. That's hot. That meat is going to cook on the outside fast, but turkey, any kind of big beast is extremely dense. And something that's that dense takes a long time to heat up in the middle. So you're going to have dry turkey on the outside and in this instance, raw turkey in the middle. Now, the other problem with traditional cooking, and, and let's take it um, away from the turkey and let's just talk about you know a steak or a, a pork loin, something like that. When you're cooking at such high temperatures, roasting, it is extremely easy to go um, past your desired internal temperature. So let's say you've got a gorgeous, and I speak from experience here, a gorgeous, you know, aged, wonderful prime, you know, T-bone, and you're cooking it for your in-laws, and they like it medium rare. So you put it on the grill, and then, oh, no, i got to take the, I don't know, mac and cheese out of the oven. You go inside, and then you come back out. You can go from that desired medium rare to medium well in a couple of minutes or less. 
therefore taking your $29 piece of beef and rendering it crap. And I've done that myself. Now, this is just, you know, this is timing. This is cooking. This is planning. This is why um, I always harp on something called mise en place, everything in its place, because when you have everything in its place and everything ready to go beforehand, you reduce the chances of overcooking something. Now, back to the sous vide and the turkey. If you part your turkey out like you suggest, if you, you know, maybe take um, some duck fat and sage leaves and salt and pepper and put your pieces into bags and vacuum seal them. Now, I definitely wouldn't want to put longer cooking things like the turkey leg in with the breast. So I would do those separately. And you can season them up like I just said, and then you can put them, you can do this the day before, two days before, three days before. This is where sous vide cooking really starts to shine. And let's just say you want the desired temperature to be 165, not 190 where that ridiculous turkey thermometer that comes on board most turkeys pops up. 165, you've got juicy turkey. And if you do it sous vide method, it's going to cook slowly and evenly. And the proteins don't denature as easily with low and slow cooking like that. That's why, you know, if you took a pork butt and you put it in a 400-degree oven and you cooked it until it was done, um, it would be nasty. But when you cook it low and slow, things happen slowly. It gets tender. The um, fat and the collagen you know, they, they start to melt and everything becomes wonderful. It's quite similar with this sous vide cooking. So if you're cooking these turkey pieces in there, when they reach the desired temperature, and the great thing is, is they can't go over that temperature. If you have a vacuum-packed bag of turkey legs in the circulator set at 165, you could leave it in there for two years. It's not going to go over 165. It can't, you know, physically... It can't, and that's the beauty of this. Whatever temperature you set, that's going to be the final temperature. Now, if you take it out in 15 minutes, you're not going to get to 165. But if you leave it in there the, the correct amount of time, and that's a debatable figure, um, you will get to that temperature. Now, let's just say for your instances, you sous vide all your turkey parts um, to 165, then you can take them out. And remember, they're sealed in this vacuum bag. There's no turkey juices. This is actually a somewhat safer method to cook with because you don't have, you know, raw turkey juices all over your kitchen. So when these things are cooked, you take them out and you drop them in a, a sink filled with ice water and you get that temperature brought way down and then they can go into the refrigerator. When you're ready to serve them, there's two schools of thought. You know, if you're one of these turkey frying guys, you certainly could take it out and, and uh, fry it. But I would prefer getting your roasting dish and cranking that oven, not to 350, but to more like 450. And take your um, turkey pieces and put them in your roasting pan and then blast them. What you want to do is caramelize the outside, give it that roasty, toasty wonderfulness that we love in roast turkey. You're not going to get that inside of a sous vide vacuum bag at 165 degrees. There'll be no browning. In fact, when you take the turkey out, it's not going to look great. It's going to be kind of grayish looking. It might even have a little bit of pink color to it. Um, 
So you you really want to do this secondary cooking, and it's no big deal because this can be done, you know, 30 minutes before you're about to serve the turkey. You put it in that ripping hot oven, and I'm, and again, this thing has got to be hot. You can't put it in a 350-degree oven and roast it for 40 minutes and not overcook it. You want to do this in about, you know, 15 minutes, 12 minutes. You have to watch it, too. If you've got a hot oven, you put those pieces in there, you know, maybe you can spritz a little olive oil on them. You really don't even need it. They're going to brown up beautifully. And then you can take them out, um, slice them, put them on a serving platter and go to the table with something that's amazing that you know you have confidence. It's not overcooked because you use the sous vide method. It's not undercooked because you use the sous vide method. It's tender, it's juicy, and it's going to be perfectly golden brown and delicious. So that's, um, that's what I suggest for you here because um, just parting the turkey up still is going to subject you to the whims of physics. In other words, you can get it all parted out and then you're dealing with timing this and that. This is a um, difficult thing to pull off. So I would definitely suggest looking carefully into the sous vide method. You can buy circulators you know, out on Amazon, eBay, different places like that, and um, – you know, the vacuum bags and sealers, those aren't that expensive. You probably get those at Costco. So that's what I would suggest here, John Paul. And I think um, once you start to get into this, you're going to realize that it's not just great for turkeys. So um, do check that out. I hope it works out for you. I appreciate everybody out there supporting Harvest Eating and also the Survival Podcast. I want to say Happy Thanksgiving, but it's a little early for that. So have a great weekend, folks. Take care. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you guys what's become my favorite way to do turkey at this point. Um, I start with the raw whole turkey and debone the breast, and then take the leg quarters and everything else gets roasted and made into stock, right? The the neck, the back, everything else. Um, and I take those breast halves and those leg quarters and I season them as I like, and I put them in my Bradley smoker, my electric smoker. And I smoke them till they're almost done temperature-wise. Like when they're just just a little bit underdone, and I vacuum seal them. I don't sous vide them, okay, though? But I'm not saying not to. I'm just saying this is what I've been doing with my turkey lately, and I do, don't do it just for Thanksgiving. And you, you don't need to constantly smoke your turkey in the Bradley. I love Bradley smokers. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to the one that I have on Amazon today. Um, they're not cheap, but they work really, really good. And uh, then when it's time to cook, I have a frozen, smoked, mostly cooked turkey, and I just finish them in the oven. And oh, and those of you guys that are coming to um, to our uh, workshop in October, guess what you're going to be eating? Yeah, that's what you're going to be eating. And I do the, the breast and the leg quarters like that. And pretty much everything else I... You know, with the big birds that we raise here that get up to like, you know, 30, 35 pounds, and I'm talking dressed weight, you end up with a few pounds of meat that's just like trimmings and stuff like that. I'll do stir fry with that. The necks on these turkeys, um, about the size of an average man's forearm, not your wrist, in, in, in diameter. I mean, like one turkey neck is a meal. Uh, and, and I'm going to make sure I tell my processor this year, leave me more of the neck because all I got was like the back half of the damn things and they were unbelievable um, so smoking consider smoking as a, a method for your turkeys as well and for big pieces of meat that you 
that have a tendency to get overdone, which turkey can, the Bradley Smoker is a precision-controlled implement. So I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes today. Anyway, with that, I've got one more question for the expert counsel today. This is for uh, uh, Tim Glantz of Old Grouch Military Surplus, and this one on ham radio and setting up um, ham radio antennas and doing it like when you get to do everything right from the ground up. Tim, take it away, man. Hey, Jack, everybody out there at the Survival Podcast, this is Tim Glantz with the expert panel. Uh, Old Grouch's Military Surplus here and also ham radio operator W4WTF with a question here from Robin who's looking for my opinion on the installation of ham radio antennas and how to run the coax in the shack. And uh, on the details, I, I'm jealous of Robin here because Robin is uh, break ground in a few months of a new home and gets to build right from scratch. Uh, that's something most hams don't get a chance to do, and it really helps you kind of optimize some stuff. Uh, Robin's on a 300-acre piece of land outside of Calgary, Alberta, and uh, going to be right in the middle of it on top of a hill that uh, got line of sight to mountains uh, to a good distance. So I'm going to assume there's repeaters on some of those, which would be good. And uh, Robin's asking about how to best run some cables and what kind of antennas and some of the stuff do there. So uh, let me give you a little little advice on what I would do if I was doing uh, from scratch. Number one, talk to your electricians. Uh, have a separate circuit ran to whichever room you're going to put your ham shack in with that is intended for nothing but your ham stuff. Do not put any GFCI outlets in this circuit anywhere because a lot of times RF will cause them to trip. Uh, I'm not of course, electrical code may be different in Canada. If they require GFCI and you have to do them, uh, take them out you know, as soon as you can because they probably will cause problems for you. Uh, so you, don't want, you want a separate circuit for your ham stuff. And that also helps you avoid any interference from other items because a lot of times you can get interference through your power supply because something that is electrically noisy is plugged somewhere else into the same circuit. So putting just the circuit for... Your radios on there will help you uh, eliminate some interference as well. Uh, you got a Robin has a Canadian honored what is that uh, basic with honors license. I'm not real familiar with the Canadian licensing system here. Allows a maximum of 250 watts DC transmitter input power, so not not super high power. But anyway, I'm going to say go ahead and have your electrician run a 220 volt circuit to that room for an amplifier. Because you may upgrade and you may want to use an amplifier one day, and it's a whole lot easier and a whole lot cheaper to go ahead and have that 220-volt circuit ran than to come back later and run it. Uh, you know, a whole lot cheaper. So go ahead and do that. Uh, put some pass-throughs to for your coax. Uh, figure up how many pieces of coax you think you're going to run, and multiply that uh, by about 0.5. So if you think you're going to run, you know, six pieces of coax, go ahead and put... Uh, inputs for nine. Uh, I prefer, if I'm doing new construction like this, to do what are called bulkhead connectors. And if you look up coax bulkhead connectors, you'll see them. And what they are, basically, uh, they look like the units you would use to join coax, uh, like two pieces, barrel connectors, but longer, so that you can run them uh, through a wall. And run them all through a piece of copper on the inside. You can have whatever's on the exterior on the outside. And it will be grounded to that copper and ground that piece of copper. And that gives you a nice ground point coming in. Uh, make sure also you have a nice ground wire run to whatever 
ground your builder installs to the ham shack that goes to that and is accessible to all your stuff. Once again, that's something most people have to go behind and do. Uh, for more details on exactly how you route that in, uh, there's a book that was put out by uh, Polyphaser called The Grounds for Lightning and EMP Protection. Uh, you can catch it in PDF format. You can catch used copies online. And it's all about how to install properly uh, coax and grounds to get the most protection from lightning. It'd take me forever to talk about it, and a lot of that you need to put for your individual stuff. So I'd recommend definitely getting a copy of that book and reading it and, and looking at how they recommend installing your grounds, installing your pass-throughs, and everything else. Uh, as far as antennas, what to use. I'm going to recommend four antennas. You say you don't want a big antenna farm. These four basics are, are where I would start then. For your VHF and UHF, I want to recommend two things. Number one is a discone antenna. Uh, there are several out there on the market. Read some reviews. And a discone is a very broadband antenna. You can typically get one that will work from 6 meters on way up through, uh, you know, up to 1.5 or even 2 gigahertz. They don't have any gain. That's one of the downsides of them. But they're resonant on virtually every VHF and UHF frequency you're going to want to use, which makes them great overall omnidirectional antennas. And because you're up on a hill with a good line of sight, gain is not as important for you there. So that will let you get a lot of versatility out of it. And the other thing I'm going to recommend is a small 2-meter uh, 440 Yagi antenna on a rotator, uh, and a standard TV rotator will work for that small one to uh, do VHF and UHF uh, when you need to go longer distances where that discone won't do it. And then that discone can be your primary uh, receiving antenna for scanner or anything else, and you can use that beam antenna uh, when you're targeting a specific direction or specific repeater. And then on uh, HF, uh, I'm going to recommend a vertical uh, Hustler 6BTV series or any of those mounted on the roof. And I'm going to recommend uh, simply the longest uh, dipole you can put up. If you can put up 160 meters, it's great. 80 meters uh, more than enough. But the longest one you can put up uh, fed with a tuner. And then once you put it up there, if it's an 80 meter, you've got a good tuner. You can tune that thing up all the way up to 10 meters if you need to. And uh, between the two of them, that will really uh, cover most of what you, what you need to do. And I would recommend also uh, on that dipole antenna, uh, putting it low to the ground and making an MVIS antenna out of it. MVIS is uh, where we put antennas low to the ground, and most of the uh, RF energy is actually reflected almost straight up to the sky. And it hits the ionosphere, and it's reflected down. And if you can imagine taking uh, a fire hose, and if you aimed it straight up, how the water, it's not going to go a long distance, but it's going to come down all around you. And what an MVIS antenna like that does is covers the area from uh, 50 miles out out to, depending on what frequency and conditions, 300 to 500 miles. And that's usually the dead zone where when you're using that vertical uh, HF antenna like re recommended, it has a very low takeoff angle. It's more like taking a rifle and shooting it to the horizon. And a lot of that RF energy is going to skip right over the top of that, that zone within a few hundred miles. So by doing the two antennas like this, you cover both bases with the dipole that's kind of low to the ground, serving as uh, your close-in HF antenna, and your vertical serving for your more long-distance contacts. 
And if you can only do one of those HF antennas, I would go for the uh, the dipole low to the ground first because in a prep situation, in a survival situation, you're more concerned about what's within the five, three to 500 miles of you than you are what's 4,000 miles. So uh, look at doing that. I hope that gives you a, a few good ideas of uh, what I do. One last thing I want to think of is when you're doing your entire house, not just your ham shack, look at the number of electrical outlets you think you're going to need and double it. I've never, ever, 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 ever talked to anybody that said, man, I've got too many electrical outlets in this house. Uh, so I would go ahead and, and, you know, look at that way, and especially in a ham shack, however many outlets you think you're going to need and whatever the formula says you're going to need, go ahead and double it because we're adding more and more electronic devices to lives every day. And if you look at some of the houses that were built, you know, in the 40s and 50s, you go into a bedroom and there might be two, one outlet with, you know, two prongs and that's it. Whereas now, you know, you can't, you can't get by with that. And uh, I don't think that's going to change any. People are going to add more and more electronics to their lives. We're not simplifying anything. So it's, it's a lot easier to have it and not use it than to not have it and need to use it. So I hope that gives you some help, and I, I do have apologize for taking so long to answer this question. I had actually done it last month, and then it just got locked up in the outbox on my phone and disappeared and then didn't get to you. So uh, if you have any more questions or need any more specifics, you can get my email right off my website at oldgrouch.com. And uh, once again, I am jealous of you getting to build from scratch and design it. And I hope everything goes well. And once you get on the air there, uh, get up with me on email, and maybe we can make a schedule and talk to each other on the air. Thanks a lot, and uh, Jack, as always, thanks for running the great podcast, and everybody, thanks for listening. Cool stuff there. I mean, I, I've just never been able to get myself into ham radio, but I like the idea of it. I think we all have to figure out what we're going to do with our time and our energy, and with the people that do it, I mean, it's really cool some of the things that you can do uh, with, with ham radio. It's, it's awesome. Anyway, so my segment for you guys today is going to be on autonomous vehicles. But before I do that, what I want to do is I want to play for you an interview. This is an interview conducted by the BBC with the president of Ford Motor Company, Mark Fields. And uh, I'll play this for you, and then I'll come back with my thoughts on it. I want you to really pay attention to the last question and the not really answer. Uh, and we'll talk about that and what this means for society going forward, what he's trying to say and trying to not say at the same time. The experience inside a vehicle where you don't have to take control of the vehicle or be attentive to how it drives uh, changes everything, whether you want to do work, whether you want entertainment, etc. And those are the types of things that we're thinking about as we design the experience for this type of fully autonomous vehicle. You mentioned it's going to be part of a ride-sharing, ride-hailing operation. Are you planning ahead for a time when people don't buy Ford cars anymore? Well, we think uh, there will be a spectrum, and uh, clearly a majority of the industry will still continue to be, even a number of years from now, people that have uh, bought and owned and driven vehicles the way they've had for many, many years. But there'll be a growing percent of the industry that will be fully autonomous vehicles, most probably in cities and urban areas, dense urban areas, uh, and it'll be growing. And we want, we're a leader today in, obviously, our core business of uh, how people drive and own vehicles today, and we want to be a leader tomorrow for the fully autonomous vehicle. Uh, you also announced a big investment in LiDAR technologies. Uh, Elon Musk of Tesla, he says that technology doesn't have a future. It's too expensive, and there's cheaper, better ways to achieve what you want to achieve. Um, why are you investing so much in 
what at least Elon Musk thinks is a, a wasted technology. Well, I can't speak to what he, you know what's going on on Elon Musk's head. I, I can only speak to our plan, and we have we believe that lidar is extremely important because it provides the precise definition around the vehicle. One of the goals of self-driving technology is that eventually there won't be drivers and that people who couldn't drive can now be in cars. But what about all those people, those millions of people that make their living from driving taxis, driving trucks? Uh, what about those people? Well, you know, clearly as you think about the societal benefits around uh, uh, fully autonomous vehicles, uh, benefits around safety, benefits around just mobility for elderly or disabled folks, uh, benefits for the environment, right, because there's less congestion. Um, clearly, those are really huge benefits. Okay, um, what I want to start out with is first, there's still a lot of denial about this. And I, I watched with great amusement a little segment on the news late, earlier this week where they were asking a trucker his opinion of these autonomous driving cars. He said he didn't like the idea because instead of a thinking, breathing human that understands that that thing coming at them is a giant truck pulling out in front of them and making that decision, it would be a computer that just thinks, well, that's just another vehicle. Uh, that's his problem? That's not his problem. You know what his real problem is? He's not a dumb man. He knows what, what what's really going to happen is his truck is going to be driven by a computer. His truck is going to be driven by a computer. And, and the denial is deep, and everybody that's, that's directly affected by this, but we're all directly affected by this, and, and I'll get to that in a second. But the people that understand that they're directly affected, I guess, that don't want to be. Uh, we took an Uber out in California one time, my wife and I, and the girl that picked us up was just driving, and my wife and I were just talking about how cool Uber is, and we were talking about Uber's plan to use autonomous vehicles. And she pipes up with, you know, that's dangerous because somebody could use a computer to take control of your vehicle and crash you into a wall. Again, it's denial. Denial is not just a river in Egypt, folks. Um, those are both clear-cut cases of denial. But you hear it in, in the, the Ford president's response or non-response. He gets quite political, doesn't he? at the end, where the guy says, well, what about those people? And he talks instead about the benefits to society, and of course they ended up cutting the interview there, because when an interviewer doesn't get what they're looking for, they just kind of find a place to end the story, and then they go on, right? So the question is, what happens to those people that, that do these dr driving jobs for a living as we move into a world where autonomous vehicles become re a regular thing? Uh, become as common as any vehicle? And the answer is, they. this is why you did, who wants to answer this question this way? They lose their jobs. They lose their jobs. But what I want to actually talk about is what are the benefits to society of autonomous vehicles? Um, I think, first of all, you pretty much eliminate drunk driving. You eliminate drunk driving. Um, and people say, well, they can make mistakes, they can have errors, they can have faults. Okay, well, depending on what year you look at, Uh, in, in the last 15, 20 years, you, you end up with uh, average fatalities. Now, this doesn't include people that are seriously injured, life-alteringly injured, you know, as in uh, paralyzed, whether quadriplegic or paraplegic, uh, or just seriously just damaged for the rest of their lives. This is only fatalities ranging between 34,000 to 44,000 a year dead on our roads. So if, if vehicles were all autonomous and we lost 20,000 people, everybody would say how horrible it is, but it would still cut the fatalities in half. 
would still cut the fatalities in half, and which one's better? The, the, the point where people want to make that is, but I get to decide how I'm driving versus the vehicle, and if, you know, that way at least I have some control. Yeah, but in the totality, we'd have less, we'd have less deaths. I would also wonder what percentage of accidents on the road are related to emotion. Related to emotion. Not just substance abuse, but emotion. What I mean is, how many accidents are caused because some jag-off cuts another person off, that person gets pissed off, goes flying after him, and even after that person that caused it's gone, he's still driving aggressively, and that causes some sort of chain of events that leads to an accident. Computers don't get angry. Computers don't say, well, that car pulled out in front of me to be a jerk. They just say, that car pulled out in front of me. This is how I need to adjust. So I think we'd have less injuries, accidents, fatalities with autonomous vehicles, not just because computers are more uh, efficient, especially the more vehicles that are autonomous, the more this becomes the case, but because the, 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 the vehicle is devoid of emotion. And... Every night in America, and I, I do think that DUI is over-policed in this country. I think that police pull people over, that they know they can get to blow a .08 or a .09 barely over the limit, that are just fine on their way home, that they could let go and they don't, and it ruins people's lives. I also think there's people that are out there drunk as a skunk that are dangerous that are killing people. And, you know... You just eliminate that variable. If I have an autonomous vehicle, it's the same as calling a taxi. It's the same as calling a taxi. See, and that's where this is really going, is it's it's not just replacing taxis and Ubers, right, and, and Lyfts and stuff like that. It's actually making them more practical. If I have a vehicle and a driver then one way or another, I bear the expense of the vehicle and the driver. And you'd say, well, that's not true, because Uber pays the driver, and the driver bears the responsibility of the vehicle in a contractor relationship. Sure, but don't you think that the rate they have to pay the Uber driver take like, – this is like basic economics that has been warped out of people's brains, and it's why people think that socialism can work, okay? Um Just because the company doesn't pay the bill doesn't mean that the consumer doesn't pay the bill because the company is paying the bill through the contract. We have to pay sufficiently to get them to do the work. So if I can have the vehicle do the work and the vehicle costs me, let's just, to make the math easy so we don't have to go to new math and use Common Core, let's just say that there was an equal expense with a factor of one. The, the driver cost me a one and the vehicle cost me a one. If the new vehicle is so much more expensive, it costs me a 1.5, and it probably doesn't, but I'm just saying to make this really clear, and I can make the driver go away, I've just reduced my expenses by 25%. That's massive. Well, if I can pass on a significant portion of savings to my customer, and if I can get more customers, I can run at a lower margin, then what I do is I reduce the cost to the consumer of being picked up and dropped off somewhere. This then makes this more practical for the consumer. We started using Uber whenever we're on vacation anywhere where Uber is and can reliably get us everywhere we want to go because it costs less than a rental car. That's, that's, that's why. Like, there's other side benefits to it, right? I don't have to worry about 
returning the car. I don't have to worry about getting in a wreck with a rental car. I, you know, I mean, there's a lot of other benefits to it. If my wife and I go out and we're on vacation and we, we go have, you know, more than a couple glasses of wine at dinner because we're on vacation and we want to, I don't have to worry about getting pulled over and have my life destroyed over a DUI, right? Out of state. I mean, what a nightmare. So, I mean, it has other benefits too, but in the end, what it really comes down to is it when you look at rental car rates versus Uber, you can spend less with Uber, depending on how much driving you're doing, obviously, and what have you. So, people do that same calculation with, do I need a car? And especially in urban areas, you're going to see people just not having a car. And I think what's going to become even more common is people not having two cars. So the family not having two cars. Because, well, there's going to be a lot of people not working. So you're not going to have to go to work every day. So one spouse might still have a job. They take a car they go to work and back with. And whoever stays home, I'm not going to say mom because there's a lot of that's going to be inverse. It's going to be dad that's staying home. Um, when they need to go to the grocery store or something, they just hail a automated Uber, basically, for lack of a better term right now. And go there. But there's there's tremendous benefits to society as a whole from these vehicles. There's less deaths. We remove emotion. We remove stress. Have you ever noticed that driving's stressful? But if you're if you're not the one driving, it's not that stressful. That if you're, you know, talking to somebody on, on your phone or reading an article or something when you're on a bus or a train. It's not stressful if it takes a little longer. You don't even really notice it. In fact, it kind of always gets there at the same time because of the automated processes that are going on there. So I think health-wise, I, I do think we'll, we'll use less fuel. First of all, if the speed limit is 55, a computer is going to do 55. And a computer is also going to be able to look ahead and see the way the traffic is And when you have, you know, the majority of vehicles being automated, eliminate stupidity. First of all, you know, computers don't need to slow down and look at somebody changing a tire. They don't care. In fact, you can get a really good look at them while the computer drives the vehicle for you. But the other thing computers can begin to do is say, well, there's congestion here, and adjust the speed of all the vehicles to keep everything moving through. Humans can't do that. We could, but we never. We could be given the information and told, adjust your speed to 47.5 miles per hour. We certainly have the capability to do it, but we're too strong-willed to do it. We're the computer. will just do it. We'll just do it. And in the end, even though you've gone slower for a time, because everything continues to move, you get there faster. And what about people who can't drive? I mean, I personally, I know I'm going to upset some people here, but I think there's a lot of elderly people still driving that shouldn't be. Um, I'm not saying when you get to a certain age that you take your license away, but I'm saying I've seen enough old people driving, and I know it will be me someday. I understand that. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not pointing at somebody else and thinking I'll never be there. I, I recently uh, uh, put up a, a video on Facebook that was a video that featured Jesse Ventura in it, and people were mocking him for his age, calling him the Crip Keeper. I'm like, be really careful mocking somebody for their age because we all have this terminal illness called life. Right, So I'm not saying that, but I am saying, and you know it's true, that as we grow older, our mental faculties go into decline. Our responses go into decline. And I've seen people driving, and I just think this person shouldn't be driving. 
I have to say my, my grandmother on my father's side was driving past a point where I really think it was a, nothing bad happened, a couple little backing into some poles and stuff in the parking lot. Nobody got hurt, but it was like something could. Something could have happened. And she was in a small town, you know, driving five miles to town and back, and that was about it. And five miles to church and back, that was about it. And that was probably why the family let it keep going on, because that's all that it was. And she drove slow, and it was a slow place where everybody drove slow. But I could just imagine if she had been living here. I, I can't see that grandmother I remembered, or little Monza, on 635. So the fact that we can give people an alternative to driving past the point where they should be. Or people that are visually impaired. Frankly, I'm amazed that I've never really been the cause of a serious accident with the fact that I can only see out of one eye. I'm, I'm legally blind in my left eye. But I've adapted and I've coped. But here's one of my big fears for other reasons as well, but... I've always been afraid, what if something happens to my right eye, whether it's disease, whether it's injury, whatever, that, that grossly affects my vision in my right eye, even if I could still see well enough to function in life, losing my mobility, my ability to say, hey, I want to go down to the store and pick up a bag of beef jerky for God, not being able to do that. We have to realize there's millions of people that are already in that camp that this could change things for. So... It was a politician's answer to steer the question to there by, by the, the president of Ford Motor Company here, but it wasn't inaccurate. But the, the damage is like, so how are we going to, this is like, this is the question that I, 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 I struggle with, and it's why I keep bringing it to your attention, um, is how on earth Are we going to balance this beneficial thing that all these different forms of automation can do for us with the damage to the economic system? Because I want you to start thinking about the totality of what we've been talking about for about two years with this now. We are moving to a place where we're going to decimate the, the low-level service jobs. We just know that. You know, for everything from Chick-fil-A to McDonald's to Panera Bread, there'll still be people there, but you cut those jobs in half minimum. We're going to wipe out the, the low-level, low-sector jobs in stores like Walmart and Target. Walmart, the single largest employer in, in the country. It, we're not that far away from the, the day when they start using robots very much like Amazon does, and you order your stuff, and you show up, and it's just there. And it's already paid for, and you just leave. And security is going to be perfect. So, so cut that cut that whole place over the next 10 to 15 years in half. And I'm being conservative when I'm only going half. Now, look at all your driving jobs. Truck drivers, taxi drivers, delivery drivers, etc. Okay? Cut that in half. Are you starting to see a pattern? We just had an architect write us in earlier this week and says, my profession is dying. And somebody commented on the blog very, very accurately that as they take this, these artificial intelligence tools that make design within the, the capacity of the, of the individual without architectural training, and they marry it to something like virtual reality, where you can stand in, for all intents and purposes, what would be a, a low-level form of a Star Trek holodeck, and say, 
I'd like this living room to be bigger. I'd like that roof to be a little taller. Oh, now I'm standing on the outside. I'd like the elevation to be slightly different on the roof. And, and, and the machine can just adjust it. And you say, but Jack, who's going to maintain, build, and, and provide that machine? Sure. But that one machine's going to need 10, 15 people maximum to, to serve as marketing, customer service, everything around it. But it's going to do the work of 100 or more architects. Now, is this a good thing? Yes. But we're out of places to move humans to in the, in the workforce. We're replacing everything that people do. And we only need so much marketing. How much marketing do we need? I mean, marketers take a bad rap sometimes. I consider myself an ethical marketer. But in the end, it's all just about companies competing with each other to sell largely the same thing. Whether you call it Coke or Pepsi, it's still fructose-infused puke water, basically, with bubbles in it that, that kills you. So how much marketing do we really need as we move into a place where people can design what they want in their own lives? But then if we're going to do that, how do those people earn enough money to pay for that stuff? It's, it is a crossroads for humanity. It's an incredible opportunity. And it is also a terrifying reality. And it's going to be very difficult for people to adapt to it until we're willing to have the conversation. And until we're willing to have that conversation, it represents a clear and present danger to our way of life. It really does. It is, for all of the fear that it was going to be inflation that would do us in, and national debt that would do us in, those or the student loan debt bubble or whatever, all of those things function by having a hamster wheel for everybody to run in to do something to generate enough money to keep throwing back into the Ponzi schemes, the multiple Ponzi schemes. What happens when you take away the hamster wheels and the little bits of energy that come out of them and computers are doing the work if we don't have a plan for navigation through that period of time? And right now, your leaders don't want to talk about it. You have Donald Trump out there telling you he's going to bring back all the steel mills and everything. To do what? To do what? To employ robots? Oh, Jack, come on. Well, it's up to you guys. Like I said, this I told you earlier this year, this is all going to start coming at a speed that you never expected. And here it is. You have Uber rolling out autonomous vehicles in Pittsburgh next year. You have Ford basically saying, it's going to be a mass market product by 2021. And that's just one piece of all of this. Um, all I can say is keep developing your skills and your knowledge and stay adaptable because that's the way that you're going to be able to take, take this and make it an opportunity rather than have it be a steamroller that rolls over top of you. With that, let me remind you, if you like this show and the work I do, you can help support us by joining the Members Support Brigade, the Members Support Brigade, or MSB. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more, and uh, you'll see a huge list of companies that give you really great discounts. How about this? Safecastle Royal will give you their $49 discount membership for life as a member of MSB. So you join for $50, bucks, you get a $49 membership from them. My membership just costs you a dollar. All right. Western Botanicals will give you one of their premium discount memberships that's $50 a year. They'll give you the first year free. That's $99 for a $50 membership. Then there's like 63 other companies that have discounts and programs available to you. 
Imagine if AAA gave you discounts that were really discounts. That's what this is like, uh, but for the prepping and homesteading world. Anyway, check us out today again, the survivalpodcast.com, and click on Members to learn more. And remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, all of you guys do qualify for a discount. And um, all you got to do to claim that discount is before, not after you join. Send an email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, and make sure you put TSPC service discount in the subject line tspc tango sierra papa charlie service discount in the subject line tell me about your service in one or two sentences and i will get back to you with a discount code again before not after you join next the other way you can support us is by doing all of your shopping at tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop on amazon usually i have an item of the day for you today i don't have one i'll probably do the bradley smoker on monday Um, because I think it's, uh, it's a really great item. And I just kind of thought of it when we had the turkey question. The reason I didn't do an item of the day is I'm kind of trying to wrap up a little bit early today because we have ongoing construction outside. We're getting everything ready for the workshop tomorrow, uh, with the students on, um, man, uh, reconfiguring the, the quail aviary and getting all of the aquaponic stuff up and running full tilt bore. So I've got two guys out there busting their hump in the heat right now while I sit in the air conditioning and enjoy myself, and I feel kind of bad about that. So I skipped the Amazon item of the day. But remember, it doesn't matter whether it's the Amazon item of the day or anything. Uh, like I said, somebody bought doggy diapers on Amazon, and they went through T-Spaz. And just by doing that, you're supporting the show. So whatever it is that you're going to be buying on Amazon, consider buying it through T-Spaz. You support the work that we do, and it doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't even really cost you any time, tspaz.com. With that, I want to get into our closing song today. So I just wanted to kind of a jabbed-up, revved-up song to send you into your weekend with some high energy and... Uh, This song is not a big message or anything like that. I have played it before, but it's Working for the Weekend. My lover boy. Um, this was a huge hit back in the 80s. I think because it resonates with people, because that's how so many people that are working for a living feel like it's all about those two days at home. Remember, the whole point that I try to make with you, though, is if, you, if you're strategic about the way you design your life, working for the weekend can mean something completely different. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.